Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Neurological Deep Dive Podcast. I am your host, Farid Fawns, and today with me I have Gospel Dawn. As usual, Gospel Dawn will talk to you about Christmas. Dawn, take it away, bud. Take it away. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is the Gospel Hour with Dawn, and our topic today is Christmas. Should Christians observe it? There are some inherently commendable features associated with the Christmas season. I want to make that clear. It is a time when people tend to think more about others, when the spirit of giving is prevalent. People tend to warm up each other a little more at this time of year. This season also occasions the gathering together of families, which may serve to strengthen family ties. This time of year reminds people that there's a Savior, Jesus the Christ, who was born in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. It presents an opportunities or an opportunity for fathers to read to their children the biblical account of the birth of Christ. Also, many who rarely attend church services during this time, they're inspired by this occasion to attend church. So surely there are some good features associated with the Christmas observance, which God may use to bring about a measure of good. But should we do that which promotes only a small amount of good to God and mankind? Shouldn't we rather do, according to our ability, that which is calculated to promote the highest possible amount of good? God's will is for us to obey His laws implicitly. And this is the best way of accomplishing the most good, that is, by obeying the law. As we obey God's laws, that's how we do good. And I'm reading now in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5, and verse 29, and it says this, Oh, that there were such an heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Do you see here how God gave his law for the purpose of promoting our well-being? So therefore, the more we obey the law, the more we will have well-being and happiness. The word well-being speaks really of happiness. Here's another verse in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33, same, same chapter. Ye shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that ye may live, and that it may be well with you, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye shall possess. So that's another verse that shows the importance of obeying God's law. And here's another one in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy verse 24 it says and the lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the lord our god for our good always that he might preserve us alive as at this day and it goes on but these verses show that god gave us his law to be kept and that we can keep it. Anybody that tells you that you can't keep God's law perfectly is lying to you because they're saying exactly the opposite of what God commands. God would never command us to do something that is naturally impossible to do. 
because that would make him a tyrant. And it's clear in these verses that keeping the law, in other words, doing God's will, is what brings about well-being and goodness to ourselves as well as to others. So the ultimate aim of every person ought to be to love God supremely and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To love means to have goodwill for. That's what that word love means. It means to promote the goodwill of or to promote the good of. That's very important to know that. Um, so to love God and mankind means to will or to choose their highest possible good. And the best way to do this is to first discover God's law and then obey God's laws. Since our chief duty in life is to love, honor, please, and obey God, is it possible to carry out this duty by means of a little bit of moral compromise? Is it not called sin and rebellion if we deliberately hold back on fully obeying God? And the answer is no. If we hold back on fully obeying God, then we are disobeying him. So sacrifices are inherently good and proper. And that's what people do during Christmas time. They make sacrifices. They buy gifts or they go out of their way to do something. They decorate or they, everybody's involved, it seems like, in, in something wherein they have to sacrifice in order to take part in this observance. So they're inherently good and proper. But was God pleased when Saul sacrificed at the expense of full obedience? Not at all. I quote from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's what God said. Here's another verse from Proverbs 21, verse 3. Quote, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So we need to realize that intending to do less than the perfect will of God is defiance against him. We should never give up or forego that which is most productive of good, if it's in our power to accomplish it, for that which is only somewhat or only slightly productive of good. Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged to settle for anything less than that which is excellent and acceptable to God. Instead, we are encouraged to, and I quote, abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment and to approve things that are excellent, end quote. That's from Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. See, we are to abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And we are to approve things that are excellent. And that's the way we ought to conduct our lives. So, I want us now to consider some reasons why we should not observe Christmas as a celebration. And I have a few reasons here. Here's the first one. There is no biblical command or precedent for celebrating Christmas. Um, in other words, and, and that is a basis or a reason to not, to not uh, observe Christmas. 
The Bible nowhere encourages the observance of Jesus's birthday. So the silence of scripture on this topic is prohibitive. But some may object to this argument and say, quote, just because the Bible does not command us to do something does not necessarily mean we should not do it, end quote. People have said that. And by the way, that is true. That is true to a point. We must look to the spirit of the law and not merely to the letter of the law. That is true. The fact that the Bible does not specifically command us to do certain things does not necessarily mean we should avoid doing them. Where in the scriptures are we commanded to brush our teeth? Nowhere. Does this mean it's wrong to brush our teeth? Not at all. But the fact that we are not commanded to observe the birthday of Jesus is still a factor to consider for not observing. It doesn't totally prove the point, but it is a, it is a factor to consider in this whole thing. If some Christians, for instance, refuse to celebrate Christmas because they want to maintain a clear conscience before God, it would be very wrong to condemn them for avoiding the celebration. Could the advocates of Christmas honestly come up with a single verse of Scripture or a single law of Christ that makes Christmas observance morally binding? I have never seen such a verse or such an argument, really. Therefore, since there is no law commanding its observance, those who condemn the abstainers of Christmas or try to make Christmas observance morally binding are encouraging legalism, even as the Judaizers did in the early church by pushing circumcision and other aspects of Jewish ceremonial law. Now, I want to read to you Galatians chapter 4. It's Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8. It says, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Now, here... The Jews, some of the Jews who espoused Christianity, were teaching the churches, the Christians, that they had to observe certain Jewish ceremonies and certain Jewish, uh, um, you would call them um, ceremonies or, or observances or uh, holy days and things like that. Well, um, this verse says that to go back to observing those holy days like Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Passover, to, make, to go back and observe those feasts and make them binding, morally binding on Christians, that would be wrong. And Paul was speaking against that. That would be called legalism or uh, the Judaizing. 
it was called Judaizing or legalism. In other words, it was pushing for a law or an observance that was uh, antiquated and uh, repealed by God since the coming of Christ. So you could see from this passage that it says, he, he, Paul says, how turn you to the beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and times and years. Now these were at one time required to be observed by the Jewish people. But since Christ came, they're no longer required. So that would have been legalism. So to push and to make uh, morally binding certain observances that are not required in the Bible is to bring people into bondage. And so I do believe that the whole Christmas observance is a form of bondage. A lot of people are bound at this time of year to buy presents. A lot of them so bound that they go into debt. And some people feel they have to put candles in their, um, in their windows and, and do all kinds of decorations. And a lot of this stems from not even from Judaism, it stems from paganism, and I'm going to go into that soon. But just to stay with that point, there's no biblical command or precedent for celebrating Christmas. So the letter of the law definitely does not command us, the letter of God's law, that is, and neither does the spirit of the law command us to do this. So the silence of Scripture on this topic is prohibitive. That's, that's point number one. Here's another one, reason why not to observe Christmas, why we should not observe it. There is not a word in the Bible about the precise day or week when Jesus was born. It would have been very unlikely that in December, the shepherds of Bethlehem would have been tending their sheep by night in open fields. The cold of night would have made it next to impossible. And you can read about that in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, where the shepherd were in the fields at that at night. Also, it, uh, it's also unlikely that Caesar Augustus would have chosen the wintertime, December, for people to travel and pay their taxes. We can reasonably be certain that the Lord Jesus was not born on December 25. Have you ever heard some Christmas songs that say Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day? That's called a lie. That is a lie. There's no proof that he was born on December 25. And so you see how um, lying takes place at this time of year. There's a lot of lies that support the observance of Christmas. And uh, so that's the second reason. There's not a word in the Bible that gives the precise day. Number three. The Christians in the early church during the first 200 years, at least the first 200 years, did not observe the birthday of Jesus, nor did they celebrate Christmas. And I quote here, this is a quote from The Two Babylons, written by Alexander Hislop, uh, which was copyrighted in 1959, but it was written earlier than that. Quote, Indeed, it is admitted by the most learned and candid writers of all parties that the day of our Lord's birth cannot be determined and that within the Christian church no such festival as Christmas was ever heard of till the third century. 
and that not till the 4th century was far advanced did it gain much observance, end quote. So that's the second, the third reason. Uh, the early church had nothing to do with Christmas observance. Number four, Christmas, as we know it today, has its roots in a pagan festival held during the winter solstice. Alexander Hislop writes again, quote, long before the fourth century and long before the Christian era itself, a festival was celebrated among the heathen at that precise time of year in honor of the birth of the son of the Babylonian queen of heaven. And it may be fairly presumed that in order to conciliate the heathen and to swell the number of the nominal adherents of Christianity, the same festival was adopted by the Roman church, giving it only the name of Christ. This tendency to, to, uh, on the part of the Christians, this tendency on the part of the Christians to meet paganism halfway was very early developed. And we find Tertullian, even in his day, about the year 230, bitterly lamenting the inconsistency of the disciples of Christ in this respect. End quote. Alexander Hislop continues, quote, that Christmas was originally a pagan festival is beyond all doubt. The time of year and the ceremonies with which it is still celebrated prove its origin. In Egypt, the son of Isis, the Egyptian title for the queen of heaven, was born at this very time of year, about the time of the winter solstice. End quote. That's again from that book, The Two Babylons. Here's a quote from the Funk and Wagnall's new encyclopedia. Quote, under the Roman Empire, the Saturnalia was celebrated for seven days from December 7, uh, 17 to 23, during the period in which the winter solstice occurred. During this period, all business was suspended, slaves were given temporary freedom, gifts were exchanged, and merriment prevailed, end quote. And that's from a, a different encyclopedia. But a lot of other encyclopedias will give you similar, similar information. So perhaps some believers are uninformed about the origins of Christmas. But surely God is not uninformed in this matter. God knows all about the beginnings, the origins of the whole Christmas celebration. He knows all about it. He's not ignorant on this. And remember, we, are, we worship God. So we have to put God first. And uh, from all this, it's pretty clear that God is not approving of Christmas, of the Christmas observance at all. Because he knows the origins. He knows that so much idolatry and so many people are in hell right now because of idolatry and because of paganism. And because of false and apostate Christianity. So the Christmas celebration did not originate in the Holy Scriptures. Christmas, you could say, is a fusion of paganism and apostate Christianity. Which would be the Roman Catholic Church. But the Roman Catholic Church has influenced basically all 
or most all Protestant churches in existence today. And uh, this is why I believe we are in the end times. And isn't it interesting that the more America turns away from God, the more uh, prevalent the Christmas observance is, the more people get into everything associated with, with Christmas. And isn't that kind of interesting? The more we turn away from Christ, the more people observe his so-called birthday. That's just, it kind of shows that this is all about paganism. And uh, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church has done that for years. They like to mix, mix uh, Satanism or paganism with Christian elements, and that's how it sells. That's how they sell it to the people. But it's, it's really all corrupt. The Bible says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And that's an important principle in this whole argument. So number five, another reason why we should not observe Christmas. If Christmas was truly and only about Christ and his birth, then the world in general would have nothing to do with it. The world, for the most part, has never had much love and respect for the true Christ of the Bible. Oh, a lot of people say they love Jesus, but their Jesus is a false Jesus. Their Jesus thinks it's okay to get divorced in some cases. Their Jesus thinks it's okay to wear long hair, uh, for a man to wear long hair. Their Jesus thinks it's okay for to use a corrupt Bible and, and like the NIV or the New King James Bible, to use that in our public worship. See, that's, that Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, there's uh, a lot of people even think Jesus is okay with the homosexual movement or with homosexuality. That's not the, the Jesus of the Bible. Anybody who believes that Jesus is, is believing in a false Christ. So we got to make sure we respect the true Christ. And obviously, the true Jesus does not approve of the observance of Christmas. Jesus said to his disciples, quote, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. That's in John chapter 15, verse 18. And the apostle John said in his epistle in 1 John chapter 5, he says that the whole world lieth in wickedness. He says, we know we are of God. But the whole world lieth in wickedness. So the, the world as a whole has no respect, true respect for Jesus. They'll give lip service to him because everybody needs a little bit of religion to get by in life. But it's not, they don't really love the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you know if you love Christ, if you're surrendered to his will, if you're committed to following all his teachings, not just some of them. So the fact that so many who ignore Christ and reject his words throughout the year suddenly want to observe Christmas every December tells us that there must be something about the Christmas spirit that pleases depraved men and women. If the true Jesus would be truly or mainly the reason for the season, we would have much fewer people involved in this celebration because Jesus was never popular in this sinful world. And it's especially so today. There are other factors that give rise to the Chris Christmas spirit. They are sentimentalism, regard for tradition, Roman Catholicism, apostate Christianity, uh, a time to make money, 
for businesses. You could call it commercialism. Some people like the winter solstice. They worship the sun because remember the sun starts to get, uh, the days start to get longer right after the winter solstice. Some actually get involved in sun worship or stars, the worship of the stars, the horoscope. And, and that's a little bit associated with it because it's paganism. Some like the gifts and that's why they get all involved in Christmas because they want gifts or they like to give gifts. Some they do it because they're afraid to say no. That's a, a big reason why people observe Christmas, because they don't want to be the, the, the social outcast. So, in other words, some do it for, to, because they desire social approval. Some are afraid to be called the Grinch. Even the media has been pushing this for so many years that now it's well entrenched in our society. But actually, it's still paganism. God hasn't forgotten so if we care about pleasing God, we've got to really think about these things, do our best to serve God at this time of year during Christmas time. So here's another reason. Christmas, another reason why to not observe Christmas. Christmas has too much Roman Catholicism mixed into it. Christmas stems from two words, Christ and Mass. Mass. What does that word mean? The Mass that's being referred to in Christ Mass is the consecration of the bread and wine or the celebration of the Eucharist, which is, has also been called the consecrated elements. Now, the Mass is a major part, if not the essence, of the service of the Roman Catholic Church. The Council of Trent in 1551 stated, quote, in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. And they emphasize those words. The whole Christ, they say, is truly, really, and substantially contained in the blessed sacrament, they call it in the Eucharist, in that host, the wafer. And this is a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Page 346, Liguri Publications, if you want to look it up. So the worship of the Eucharist is encouraged by genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. That's a quote. Again, same book. The Mass, as invented by the Roman Catholic Church, is a perpetual and unbloody sacrifice of Christ. It has no biblical foundation whatsoever. And to prove that, you can look it up for yourself. Look in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, chapter 10, verse 10, and keep reading. 10.10, just think of that. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So Christ hath once suffered for sins. But the Catholic Mass is a repetition of that sacrifice. And they believe that every time during this the, the the service of the Catholic Church, every time they have Mass, 
they are sacrificing Christ over again. And uh, that is sacrilegious, and that is really a form of idolatry because they really worship the wafer. I remember when I was young, and I used to take part in this, they used to put a little uh, plate under us in case Jesus would fall down to the ground. Uh, that would not be good for Jesus to fall on the ground. So they had a little plate so that if he would fall, he would just fall into the plate and not on the ground. They worshiped that wafer. And um, I speak from experience. I used to be involved in this. If Jesus is said to be truly, really, and substantially present in the bread and wine offered during Mass, then doesn't this make these consecrated elements sacred and divine? and deserving of worship? Isn't this idolatry? Isn't Jesus himself, and not a consecrated wafer or host, the only person or object on this earth who was God manifest in the flesh and worthy of worship? Only Christ is worthy of worship. And yes, he did live. He came to earth in the flesh, and he was born in a stable. But he lived about 33 years and the Roman world, as well as the Jews, they crucified him. The Jew and Gentile all had a part in crucifying Christ. But through that crucifixion came the atoning sacrifice by which we can now be forgiven of all our sins. Thank God for the blessed cross of Christ that Jesus obeyed to the point of dying for us. But anyway, <clears throat> the only one who was ever manifest in the flesh who is God manifest in the flesh, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Since the Mass ostensibly causes God to be manifest in the host, and since all idolaters shall have their part in the lake of fire, according to Revelation 21, verse 8, should not these considerations serve as strong reasons to repudiate the celebration of Christ Mass? That's what it is. It's a combination of two words, Christ and Mass. So the point is this. Christmas is very much um, implicated in the Roman Catholic system, which the Bible calls the Babylon the Great. And it also calls uh, this Roman Catholic system the whore the great whore. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number seven. God never commands us to observe Christmas, but he does command us to rest one day after six days of labor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why do so many who take lightly the commands and the precedent to observe the Lord's Day, take so much pain to observe a day that is not only never mentioned in the Bible, but also well confirmed to be associated with heathenism. If they who cooperate with, Christ with Christmas would be truly sensitive to God's voice, they would begin to take the day seriously or that one day that the Bible commands us to observe. What is that day? It is the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. <clears throat> Sunday, we could call it. Uh, the first day of the week. And that's when the early church observed 
um, a day of rest. Or it definitely was the day when they would go and hear some preaching. It would be the first day of the week. And you can read all about this in, in the Bible. Now, yes, the Jews observed the day of rest. And the word Sabbath means rest. They observed it on Saturday, which was the last day of the week. Well, the Christians, since Christ came, since Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and since Pentecost occurred on the first day of the week, and since the apostles saw Jesus and met with Jesus on the first day of the week after the resurrection, all these things combined, plus in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, all these verses show that the day to the best day to observe the day of rest would be Sunday or the first day of the week. That's what the early church did, and we'd be best to stick with that. Now, obviously, some people have to work on Sunday because of works of necessity, like police officers and doctors and nurses. Sometimes they have to work on Sunday, and other people have to work on Sunday. So they, they can't take, make that their day of rest. They could take another day of rest. But the point that God commands is this. He says, six days thou shalt work, but on the seventh day is, is to be remembered as a day of rest. So we, the principle is this. We should rest one day in seven, and that is commanded by God. And how many people are doing that? Number eight, if Christ were truly the reason for the season, then would not those who celebrate Christmas follow Christ more closely during this time of year? If Christ would really be the central figure of this season, we would see an increase in Bible study and a drop in alcohol consumption. If Jesus Christ would be truly remembered and honored in this winter celebration, then we would expect to see a decrease in immorality. At this time, we would see parents providing for their children by training them in the ways of Christ rather than spoiling them with gifts and with undue attention. We would see less pursuit of material gain and more pursuit of spiritual advancement. We would see more giving that meets spiritual needs and less giving to compromised Christian ministries, which there are many in America. We would see stores and businesses make much mention about of Christ and his birth. Holy living and Christian restraint would prevail rather than commercialism, misplaced giving, overspending, loose living, and the telling of lies to children such as those about Santa Claus and the ability for him to see you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. And, you know, you hear a lot of people Jesus say this, Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, actually, he really is not. Apostate Christianity is the reason for the season. And paganism is the reason for the season. That's what produced this, this, this celebration. That was number eight. In other words, number eight would be, if Jesus was the reason for the season, then we would see more people following Christ more closely during this time of year. Number nine, we have a very good example to follow in those Christians who were so active in establishing America. Who are these people? They were the pilgrims, the nonconformists, 
and the Puritans. John Quincy Adams, who was the fifth president of the United States, made a speech on a July 4th in 1837. And he mentioned the fact that thousands and ten thousands among them abstained under the dictate of religious principle from the commemoration of the birthday of Christ. That was early America. Thousands and thousands did not observe Christmas in early America. And the reason why is because it was founded by Bible believers who wanted to escape the tyranny of Rome and the fact that Rome would censor good speech. And they wanted to escape, escape that. Rome uh, practiced censorship very, very much over there in Europe. And uh, that's why the pilgrims wanted to leave Europe because they saw that their countries were corrupt and, and they were not fearing God and obeying God. So that's why they founded America. Well, regarding this comment by John Quincy Adams, uh, Mr. David Barton inserted a, an interesting note in his book. Forgive me, it's a little lengthy, but it's really a good note. It's from David Barton in his book uh, called Celebrate Liberty from the Waldo, uh, Wall, Builder, Wall Builder Press. And uh, I quote here, It seems unimaginable today that tens of thousands in the then extremely religious New England region would abstain under dictate of religious principle from celebrating Christmas, which today has become such a prominent religious holiday, yet such was the case. Why? He asks why. Because the pilgrims and Puritans of New England found no biblical precedent for a public celebration of that day. Recall that the goal of these groups was to simplify religious worship and to cut away all religious rituals and celebrations not specifically cited in, in the Bible. Nothing in the Bible established any date for the birth of Christ. The holiday was instead established by Roman tradition, thus making it, in their view, one of the many pagan holidays that had been inculcated into the corrupt church that had persecuted them, and which they and other religious leaders wished to, inf to reform. Consequently, Christmas in New England remained a regular working day. In fact, Massachusetts passed an anti-Christmas -Christ law in 1659, declaring, Whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing labor, feasting, or any other way, Upon such account as aforesaid, every such person so offending shall pay for each offense five shillings as a fine to the country. The law was repealed in 1681. But the holiday still was not celebrated by religious nonconformists or dissenters, which were the Puritans and, and the pilgrims. It usually was celebrated, Christmas at that time was usually celebrated only by a few Anglicans, later called Episcopalians, and Catholics, and other more formal or high church tradition New England families. It was not until the 1830s and 1840s, at the time of this oration, that Christmas 
celebrations were just beginning to be accepted in New England. And it was primarily due to the influence of the large-scale Christmas celebrations in cities such as New York. Although as late as 1870, in Boston public schools, a student missing school on Christmas Day could be punished or expelled. By the 1880s, however, Christmas celebrations had finally become as accepted in New England as they were in other parts of the country. That's now, end quote. That, that was his lengthy quote. And uh, I just thought that was quite noteworthy that he said that. And uh, I have another quote here. It's from uh, Increase Mather, who said this in, eight, in 1687. He was a very influential New England Puritan and uh, he was a pastor, authority of some kind. And um, his name is Increase Mather. And this is what he wrote, quote, In the apostolical times, the feast of the nativity was not observed. It can never be proved that Christ was born on December 25. The New Testament allows of no stated holy day, but the Lord's day. It was in complete I'm sorry, it was in compliance with the pagan Saturnalia that Christmas holy days were first invented. The manner of Christmas keeping, as generally observed, is highly dishonorable to the name of Christ. And he was not the only one that spoke like that. There was another Anglican, Hugh Latimer, even spoke like that. He said this, Men dishonor Christ more in the 12 days of Christmas than in all the 12 months besides, end quote. That's what he said. And so um, these are just some good quotes from people who were very instrumental in the founding of our country. And they did not push for Christmas observance. That is definitely being pushed by uh, apostate Christianity. Number 10, another reason not to celebrate Christmas. Celebrating the birthday of Jesus is not the kind of love and affection that God really wants. And this is another reason to avoid Christmas. Observing Jesus' birthday is doing something that he never tells us to do. It's only a seeming or a sentimental love for him and not a real and a, and a genu genuine love for him. If we really love Jesus, we will really obey his commands. And some of his commands are these. Be not conformed to this world. Do not participate in the Roman Catholic Mass. Flee from idolatry. Flee from paganism. Flee from wafer worship. And, and I could add to this list. These are all commands that are given to, uh, to, to people, and people are not obeying. Here's another command. Wives, um, submit yourselves unto your own husbands in everything. That's, that's a command of Christ. Just that alone would, would so solve many, many problems in our homes. And husbands are to act as heads of their wives, and they are to rule well their own homes. And that, too, would really solve a lot of problems. So um, these are just uh, some of the things. Most husbands, if I could uh, give an example here, most husbands want love, affection, honor, and submission from their wives. Would your wife be pleasing you if she celebrated your birthday or brought you gifts from time to time, 
while regularly withholding from you the love, affection, and submission that you desire and that you are entitled to. Think about it. Suppose your wife claims to love you, but she also loves another man also. Would you consider her to be a good wife? When we flirt with the spirit of Christmas, are we not taking part in a celebration that began before Christ and in honor of the Son God, and yet uh, taking part in idolatry? Is that the way we love Christ? Flirting with, with idols? No. The Bible says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Most parents want love, respect, and obedience from their children. Suppose your child gives you gifts and hugs and always remembers your birthday, but regularly ignores your wishes or disrespects you or disobeys your will. Would you appreciate that child being that way? Obviously not. And this is how fickle Americans have been. Oh, it's a big sin these days if you don't give somebody something for their birthday. Well, the Bible doesn't command you to give anybody anything for their birthday. But it does command children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. See, we got to obey the commands. And I'm sure most parents want uh, obedience from their children more so than just about anything else. Because parents care for their children and they know that if their children obey their rules that it will go well with them because parents really care about the well-being of their own children. So a child who remembers your birthday but disobeys your commands, would that child be pleasing to you and in your favor? And I think the answer is obvious. Our Heavenly Father does not want us to remember His Son's birthday, which He kept hidden from the world for a good reason. Instead, he wants us to love his son by obeying his commands. One of his commands is this, to observe the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath, which has been the day that Christ rose from the dead, which would be the first day of the week. Are you observing the Christian Sabbath by making the first day of the week a time of church attendance and rest from usual labor? That's the day that God wants you to remember. So I want to conclude here with some words. Yes, we should express goodwill toward all men, spread cheer to all, and promote the highest possible good to mankind. But in doing this, we should never offend God or use means that are in conflict with His written word. Christmas trees, mistletoes, wreaths, exchanging of gifts, merrymaking, taking time off from work, candles, wreaths, I already mentioned wreaths. All these customs during this time of year are more in line with the Roman Saturnalia and the worship of the Babylonian sun god than they are in line with biblical Christianity. You can look at Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1 to 5, where it seems very, very likely that that's where Christmas trees came from. Some in our day, especially the leftists, who control the mass media and some large, or maybe all large corporations, they do not want us to say Merry Christmas, but prefer us to say Happy Holidays. 
they avoid the word Christmas because they have an aversion toward Christ, the Son of God. But others avoid the greeting of Merry Christmas out of a deep love for Jesus Christ and don't want to smear his good name by associating him with an old or with old pagan forms of worship and with Roman Catholicism. Jesus Christ is entirely truthful and completely without sin. He could have no part in perpetuating superstition or the worship of nature or the, Rome, the Roman Catholic Mass or the use of candles, which stems from superstition and paganism. Or the use of the Christmas tree, which apparently is much has been in the past used um, by um, pagans. The observance of the Christmas holiday has some inherently benign aspects, but is this holiday celebration entirely commendable in the sight of God? Is it well pleasing to God and thus morally right to take part in a celebration? that is derived from paganism, associated with a corrupt form of Christianity, and productive of much materialism and covetousness? Is God pleased when we engage in practices that have elements of evil mixed in with elements of good? Can a little leaven of corruption leaven the whole lump? Well, the Bible answers that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. Now, I want to turn to a passage that is in Jeremiah. I said I would, um, I mentioned Jeremiah, and it's in chapter 10, and verse 1 says this, Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heaven, for the heathen, Sorry, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be borne because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. In other words, don't have any superstitious um, affiliation with trees. And it's talking about trees that they would deck with silver and gold. And this is written way before Jesus was born. This was written in probably about 600 BC, about 600 years before Christ was born. And it seems here, it's interesting that, see, it, this seems to have taken place during the winter solstice because it says, uh, be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. Well, at the winter solstice, the days are getting shorter. The sun is going away. And these heathens were probably a little bit afraid. We're going to lose the sun. Because the days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So these people were praying to their sun god. And they were worshipping the sun god. And that's what the winter solstice celebration was basically all about. So they were dismayed at these signs. And they were superstitious. They thought they'd lose the sun. So they'd pray to their god. And then, of course, they had their celebrations. They did their 
things, uh, whatever they were, uh, and it, it seemed like it was just superstition. And uh, look what we do on Christmas Day. We we worship, we, we uh, reenact all these things that the pagans were involved in. So um, I just think that verse kind of depicts, if not perfectly, pretty clearly uh, what the Christmas tree is all about. And that's probably where the Christmas trees came from. And there's quite a few verses in the Bible that talks about they would worship under every green tree. It mentions that quite a bit. I found four or five verses in the Old Testament. It was under every green tree. Well, what's under the Christmas tree? I think there's a lot of objects of worship that are found under Christmas trees these days. And so, um, and that, all that does is it encourages children to not be content with what they have and to covet. And we don't want, you know, we, we should not be asking children, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want? You know, Instead, we should be telling them, be thankful for what you already have. And uh, pray to God. And uh, that if you need something during the year, ask, ask mom and dad. But um, we should not be promoting uh, covetousness, which I believe Christmas tends to do. And it turns into a real letdown because everybody looks forward to the great night of when they open their gifts or the great morning when they open their gifts. And then there's a letdown. And there's only one thing that can satisfy the human heart, and that is Almighty God. And Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. May God bless you, folks. You, you have a good day. <laughs>